The Bucket Plan On Demand podcast series is brought to you by Clarity to Prosperity, a financial training, coaching, and IP development organization led by financial advisors, coaches, and business leaders committed to taking a holistic approach to advising. To learn more about our organization and upcoming training opportunities for financial professionals, visit ClarityToProsperity.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's Bucket Plan On Demand podcast. I've got a very special guest speaker and subject matter expert on the call with us today, Jody Williamson. And uh, today we're going to be talking about how to increase your closing ratio. Now, we did put a statistic in the headline, how to increase your closing ratio by 72.3%. Uh, my business partner, Jason Smith, and I were bouncing around reading a blog one day on how to write a more interactive headline. And it said you have to have a bold and kind of audacious number in the headline. And so we picked 72.3%. And the reality of it is with the topic we're going to be talking about today, whether you increase your prospect to client closing ratio by 5%, 20%, 50%, 100%, or even 72.3%. I think you're going to get a lot of really valuable information just because of the guest speaker that I've got on with us. So I mentioned uh, Jody Williamson. I had the opportunity to get introduced to Jody, uh, I believe probably what Jody, maybe six months ago or so. Uh, something like that, yeah. Yeah, and so Jody is actually in Jason Smith's strategic coach class. How long have you been part of strategic coach, Jody? Uh, coming up on 21 years. 21 <laughs> years. <a> slow learner. <laughs> <laughs> slow learner, or you just really understand the value coach brings. I do. Uh, Dan Sullivan's phenomenal. I know our business wouldn't be here without it. No, and ours, ours wouldn't either. Yep, absolutely. So, so we had that in common, but the reason that, that I got hooked up with Jody is uh, – is we knew we wanted to work on some of the sales management and sales skills of our organization in general. And uh, Jody's certainly a subject matter expert on that. He's the best-selling author of a book called The Contrarian Salesperson. And he also is uh, involved with Sandler sales training. And so, uh, Jody, would you mind just sharing a little bit of your, your background, uh, your, your story, and also Sandler sales training for those of the listeners that aren't familiar with it? Yeah, so I, I personally, I've been in sales, I guess since I was like uh, selling shoes in high school <laughs> at the shoe store and door-to-door uh, -door selling snowblower uh, services and lawn services and I kind of got out of the control from there and worked my way through college selling and then got into media sales. Uh, so I mean, I've been selling for you know 35 years or whatever, um, and and I, um and and, and yeah, you know, I moved into the Sandler organization and I, I bought one of the Sandler offices here in Chicago, a couple of them, and um so so I've been in sales, sales management, and training for for all these years, and and really uh, my passion is selling. I mean, I think I think nothing happens until someone sells something, and and we can have uh, the greatest widget sitting on a shelf, but unless someone goes out and makes something happen in our you know in our capitalist kind of way things work, it's it's not going to sell itself typically unless we've got this better mousetrap that you really just can't keep innovating, and so. Um, selling is, I think, really important and it often misunderstood uh, as a pushing, convincing activity. And my approach and this overall Sandler approach is one of more discovery-based 
Let's qualify people. And if we can't help them, let's just figure that out early on and not waste their time or our time. And let's just find people we can better uh, help out. And the more we can qualify to determine are the issues they're having some things we can help out with, that's ultimately what, what wins. And so my view of selling is it should be a mutual qualification process. And there should not be this, you know, salesperson's like trying to, you know, convince and and self-centered kind of approach of just selling and it really becomes a trusted advisor type relationship in, even in the sales process before we even get into more of a they're our client and we're delivering some value and and then, and then overall sandler just to touch on that you know, we have 275 offices 30 countries i own a couple in chicago and they're all individually owned and and uh, sandler's been around 50 plus years world's largest sales and sales management training organization at this point uh, so our sweet spot is really sales and sales management and um and that's really what i that's where my passion is, as you know, because we've spent some time together, and and uh, that's where I think some of my skill set is, is being help, you know, helping people take what can be a, a complicated uh, process of selling and just simplifying it to something we can take action on. Yeah, and uh, and Sandler, because of the reputation and the quality of work they did, they just got brought into uh, what was it Harvard Business School, wasn't it? As yeah, well, the, yep, exactly. We're in the Harvard curriculum now, so it's just. Uh, you know, it's 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 pretty cool because it's it's not only the credibility, but just the validation that the stuff works, and it's and it's you know everything from the large uh, organizations down to the individuals, and and certainly with advisors, that's been for you know for probably all 50 years. One of the one of the areas that our, our stuff just seems to be a good fit in, just because of the style of of the way we we work with people and coach them on how how selling should work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's get into a couple things I think will really help the listeners today. Um, I had a, a couple pretty big aha moments. I, I attended Jody's uh, three-day boot camp in Chicago and, um, and just the light bulb really went off uh, for me. Uh, to, to say it bluntly, a kind of light bulb went off that I realized that I was uh, you know, successful working with clients, not because I was good at sales, but because I was probably pretty decent uh, at, at relationship development, bonding and rapport, but, but really, you know, uncovered that I really didn't have a sales process um, and a way to, you know, really kind of to, to understand and create the need for prospects to want to move forward with me. I was uh, probably more focused on selling based on the features and benefits of working with myself and my organization versus really creating the need and inspiring them to realize that they need me just as much as I wanted them. Um, Jody, can you talk about that a little bit? You mentioned it in your opening of, of kind of how the philosophies you, you and Sandler organization think about sales is, is different than maybe some of the other different approaches out there. Can you, can you share a little bit, bit of background on that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the traditional approach is one of features and benefits. And as I, as I uh, mentioned before, it's about convincing. It's basically if they fog a mirror, they're a prospect and we should chase them. And that's the traditional approach. And the reason I wrote the contrarian salesperson is that, uh, you know, in the evolution of, we'll call it the buyer-seller dance, where there's a buyer and a seller, there is such a negative image of what a salesperson is. And I know that when I'm dealing with professions like advisors, you certainly don't want to be perceived to be a salesperson. I mean, that, that people, and, and most people have a, 
kind of this in the, I think we all with life experience kind of get this internal radar when, when someone's trying to sell us something, the defenses go up. And so the contrarian salesperson book I wrote was based on, you know, traditional salespeople and their approach invites a very negative response from prospects. So contrarianism is basically doing the opposite of what others do. So the contrarian salesperson is a parable of, and, and really an approach and philosophy to selling that says if we look and sound like every other salesperson, we're going to be treated like salespeople, which is basically a lower life form, kind of shunned away, ignored, disrespected. And I think especially with advisors, that's the last place we want to be. I mean, it's hard enough to get trusted advisor status, but right out of the box, they have people put us in, oh, you're just a salesperson. That's not where I want to be or I should be. Absolutely. So what do you, what do you feel are some of the top things that, you know, we as financial advisors, because at the end of the day, the reality is we are in sales, right? If we don't go out and sell people on why we sh they, should, they should hire us as their financial advisor, we're not in business. But what would you say some of the things that maybe an advisor should be aware of in that first prospect meeting, right? You're, you're getting to know that person, a brand new person comes into your office. Uh, any kind of tips or insight, things that, that you've seen work in the past? Well, I think one of the, one of the pieces is that, you know, everyone's, everyone's different, even though we might want to categorize people like how oh, this person's a small business owner and they're going to have a certain profile and this person over here has whatever kind of background and they're going to have a certain profile. You know, we have a Sandler rule, which says no mind reading. And, and we don't want to do mind reading and assume things um, as far as people's needs go or where they're at in their situation. We want to ask the kinds of questions that uncover is, you know, is that really, is our assumption true or is there something else going on? So first of all, we want to ask questions. See, the person, uh, the value in selling that the salesperson brings is really in asking better questions, not in having better features and benefits. Because the bottom line is for many advisors, if they just sell on features and benefits, they're going to get commoditized because the features and benefits are pretty similar among advisors, right? So it's like, you know, we can all talk about how we have a unique process and all that kind of stuff, but everybody says that. So how am I going to approach it? If, and, and so the approach should be, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to mind read. I'm going to qualify or disqualify this person. And I'm going to do it through a conversation of mutual qualification where I'm going to ask questions and engage in the kind of conversation where upfront I can tell them, hey, let's figure out today if, if there's any potential fit here, and if there's not, we'll stop. We don't want to waste each other's time. And so, as, as, as you know the term, that's an upfront contract, basically agreeing at the beginning of a meeting as to what the agenda is going to be, and that it's okay for either one of us to step away at some point and say, hey, not a good fit. And when we approach it that way, see, if I tell you, hey, Dave, it's okay in today's meeting if we don't have a, have a fit not to go forward, then you have an out, and your guard goes down, and now we can have an authentic conversation. Because many people in first meetings don't get the real story because people's guard is so high that they're, that they're not really being authentic. And so it's really hard to qualify people if we don't even really know if what they're saying is being totally forthright. Absolutely. I'll tell you, we've been using, uh, you know, some form of, I guess, a version of an upfront contract. Now we've, we've even made some enhancements to it after going through, through your training. But you know, we'd always tell prospects in that first meeting, generally at the end of today's meeting, one of three things will happen. Number one, you're going to see the value of our holistic planning process and agree to go through our full comprehensive financial planning process. 
Number two, we're going to just identify a specific service you're in need of and we'll schedule another appointment to take care of that service for you. Or number three, we're just going to decide that it this time it's not a good fit and we'll part ways as friends. Hopefully you'll have learned something. And, you know, I found that when we share that early on in the appointment process, you can just see like the, the prospects, the husband and wife across from you, they, they kind of take a, like a sigh of relief, right? That they're not going to be pestered to buy something on the spot in that meeting. And it brings clarity into what the expectations are because so many times in our industry, you know, these, uh, these prospects, maybe they've never worked with a financial advisor before, and maybe they're a little intimidated, and, and it just kind of creates this pressure-free zone. And if they've worked with a financial advisor in the past, they might not have been very good. They might have been a glorified salesperson and not a, tr not a true advisor. And so, uh, and there's enough stories. I mean, with any life experience, we hear stories. So we're always on guard. And, and so, yeah, that's, that, that's exactly the, the, giving them those choices or those options as to outcomes is, is exactly the kinds of things we want to be doing in the process. Yeah. And you mentioned something earlier I just want to swing back around to is mind reading because I know this was something I've been really guilty of is not asking enough questions. I would assume and I would mind reading and it'd be something as simple as I had a, a prospect that came in last, uh, last Friday and uh, you know we started going through what some of their initial concerns and, and priorities were and one of the things that they said was running out of money, right? And if you think about that concept, I could have easily stopped there and just said, oh, I, I see that's a concern for you and just kind of documented it, moved on. And to be honest, that's probably what I would have done prior to coming through your boot camp training. But now kind of rethinking the sales process, that gave me a huge window to not mind read and, and, and ask further kind of thought provoking or probing questions like, why is that a concern to you? Tell me more about that. How does that make you feel? Some of the, the questions that is going to get a layer deeper and uh, continue to, to peel back the onion a little bit. Um, and, and I just found, you know, somebody, I, I was talking with, um, with Jason just the other day, and, and uh, we were kind of talking about this whole concept. And he said, you know, the biggest reason that advisors probably don't do that is they think it's common sense. Like, why would you ask somebody why is running out of money important to you? Like, isn't that common sense? But I didn't get to hear it from their perspective. Exactly. And, and what, you know, the, the analogy of a psychiatrist, because we, and really what we teach is, as you've seen, a lot of it's just the psychology of, of, of the sales process. But if you think of someone who goes to a therapist and the therapist is sitting there and says, okay, hey, you first visit, why don't you sit down, tell me why you're here. And the patient you know, let's say they have an hour set up for their, for their session. And three minutes into it, the, the psychiatrist says, time out. I know exactly what your problem is. I, I can just tell in the first three minutes, here's what your problem is. And, and, and here's how you fix it. And now, and I've seen this for many, many years. I know exactly, I'm very experienced. And, and here's your solution. Uh, even, if, even if the psychiatrist was right, and they were 100% mind reading correctly, people don't buy in to solutions unless they fully articulate the problem. So I could, the, the psychiatrist could be correct on the problem, but the fact that the patient didn't uh, acknowledge it and, and, and go through the discovery process, there's not the buy-in. And what happens is 
using that kind of psychology is that if we're dealing with people who haven't really told us why running out of money is important at a really personal and emotional level, then, I mean, think about that statement. I'm worried about running out of money. At, at some level, that's a very intellectual statement. And people, a lot of people would say that, right? But why? And how, what, what's your biggest fear? What, what do you, how would you say that affecting your family? What would you, would, and so walking through this process where they can discover and visualize what running out of money could look like will create somebody who's not only more, um, they, they're more aware of what the problems are, but they're more willing to act on fixing it. And the challenge is a lot of people have these, have these concerns, but they haven't fully walked down the path of consequences, so they don't take action. So they're the kinds of people a financial advisor will have a meeting with, they'll say, well, you know what, not a good time now. I'm thinking next year might be a better time. Call me next year. And we call next year. Hey, I've been thinking about you, but not a good, I mean, it just, and it's not that there's not a good fit. It's that the person hasn't committed to the problem to the level where they want to take action. Right. So first, it's all about identifying the problem. And then understanding what your prospect's commitment level is to fixing it or, or having them kind of visualize how it could impact their, their overall situation, their personal situation, right? Yeah, I mean, I wanna start with the problem, which is basically I'm worried about running out of money. Then I wanna to get to the reasons for that. Well, I, I, it's my family and it's uh, my business and I, all these things. And, and then I wanna to get to the consequences and impact. What's the biggest fear at the end? So I want people, it, it's very much like, I don't know, it, it's like exercise. I mean, we all know we should exercise. And many people don't start exercising. In fact, I have a client who didn't start exercising until he went to the doctor and got a test result that wasn't so great. And the doctor said, if you don't make some changes, you know, let me tell you what's going to happen. And the guy all of a sudden walked into the future and saw a future he didn't want to be a part of. And he started exercising. He's been, it's about a year into it now. And he's known for decades that he should exercise but it took that moment of clarity into the future that the doctor helped him see that got him to take action so it's really getting people to become aware of the problem own the problem and ultimately then they're motivated enough to fix it yeah and can you talk a little bit about you know the concept of the four buying emotions you know, with pain in the present, pain in the future, that, that, that concept that you guys created yeah, and yeah. how that kind of fits into people's motivation to take action and fix these things now. Yeah. And, and so, and, and that really comes from uh, psychology books. You know, if you ever took a psychology class in high school or college or somewhere like that, there's typically this hierarchy of motivators of people. And it starts with the highest, you know, the strongest motivator at the top and at the bottom is the, the least motivating. And when it comes to, and we'll just apply it to this, is that pain is the strongest motivator. Pain is the one that gets people to take the most action. Pain in the present, like right now. The second most powerful one is pain in the future, or we could also call that fear, right? So, so pain in the future and fear are the same thing. And, and pain at, at the top of the kind of list and then fear or pain in the future are the two most motivating. And so going back to my example uh, of my client, it's like, you know, when, when he had it very clear that there was a fear that, that he could die in the future if he didn't make some changes, it was like, wow, it's like, that's what I needed to take action that I know I should take for so long. So, so then we go, so if we say pain is the strongest motivator, fear is second, uh, just behind that, it gets people to take action. And, and, and the third is pleasure. 
in the present, like pleasure right now, like we call it gains. We call it pain versus gain. We could, if we want to use those two kind of terms that sound the same. And, and then pain or a pleasure in the future would be the fourth motivator. And there's actually a fifth one, which is curiosity, which I don't want on the list because a lot of people in, in, in sales overall sell to people who are, who are just kind of in curiosity mode, right? They're certainly not in pain. So that what happens is because the person's not really motivated, they, they have multiple meetings or they follow up or they do other things over time and they realize that they don't really have somebody who's to a place where they, they are motivated to make a change. But, but if, so if you think of it, pain is the strongest motivator, fear, and then pleasure now and pleasure in the future is kind of the hierarchy of what gets people to take action. And that's important for advisors to know because if I go in with just an approach of gain, which is the pleasure, which is, hey, you're doing okay now, but we, we can help you get better that's not as motivating as if, hey, you're doing okay now, but if you don't make these changes in the future, here's what's going to happen in a negative fashion. That's more motivating. So it's many times it's the way we approach it. If we have a pleasure-based, hey, we can improve it uh, approach, it's not near as motivating as, hey, if you don't take action, here's the problem you could experience. Absolutely. And that helped me kind of shift my mindset a little bit in, in starting to think through the people that I was sitting down with and, and uh, Jason Smith and I, you know, we have a, a little bit different demographic of clients that we work with. I generally work with younger high net worth clients and he's more in the mass affluent retiree and pre-retiree market space. And so, you know, as I started thinking about this, one of the things that, that I always uh, talk to other advisors about, and I think a big disconnect of many financial advisors when they want to get into the younger higher net worth space is, so many advisors talk about retirement planning to these people and it's like, dude, they're in their 30s or 40s and they're making really good income right now and retirement, that's like a pleasure in the future, right? That's something that's on the, the far end of that spectrum and if you're talking to them about retirement planning, they're going to be not very motivated to move forward with you, but you bring it to some sort of fear, right? Where if the breadwinner prematurely passed away, what would happen to their family without the right insurance coverage and legal documents? And, uh, and then even trying to get that fear to the pain in the present of saying, well, what assets would you liquidate and how would you downside the, downsize the home if you were to pass away? Uh, we've always heard, and, and Jason and I go to uh, some great life insurance conferences out there, but you know, life insurance is one of those products that is, it's definitely sold, not bought. And the biggest and the best life insurance agents in the, in the country, they're the ones who are able to really create that pain. Um, and, and that's, you know, not much different than the pre-retiree marketplace, right? Because these people now are in the red zone. They know that they don't have a lot of time on their side to recover from bad decisions. And so, you know, a lot of advisors out there, you know, and they, they certainly do a good job at this, but they, they share all the positivities of retirement but a lot of the most successful advisors that we've seen of bringing on new clients and prospects, they're the ones who can really, you know, incite that, that kind of pain or fear to, to a certain extent of like, you need to hire me to guide you through these massive decisions you're going to have to make in a couple of years because you only have one chance to get it right. Yeah. And, and, and retirement's a really good example with young, someone who's younger, uh, a, a really good advisor uh, and I've worked with advisors for many years, 
they, they just know how to paint that picture because because pain can be done through questions. It can be done through third party stories. It can be done. To, you know, so so being able to get people to visualize, uh, even though they're at a younger age, what it would be like to run out of money with advancing, you know, with the increased life expectancies or uh, get in a situation where um, they have to work longer than they wanted to just because they haven't saved enough and now they're at an age where all their friends are retiring and they didn't plan, so now they're working longer than they wanted to. And, and getting them to visualize what that looks like and, 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 and stories can be a great way to do it. Um, case studies, you know, there's all kinds of different tools you can use, but the psychology is important. Getting people to walk into their future and see what it is with, you know, without the solution we have versus with the solution. If there's not a gap there in between the pain they'd experience if they didn't do it uh, versus the pleasure they get if they did do it, if there's not a big enough gap there, then they're not going to take action. And so let's either figure out that they're never going to take action and go find a better qualified person to work with, or let's walk them through the process of discovery to get them to see that they're not, they're, they're just not there yet, but with the right questions and stories, we can actually get them to have an aha light bulb moment where they're like, wow, I, I just realized I got to do something now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think advisors can kind of transcend that message over into some of their marketing and prospecting efforts. Also, I was uh, uh, a couple weeks ago, I shared this with a couple advisors. I was um, in California having dinner with my brother and he manages uh, a pretty large uh, division of a, a large company and a couple thousand people indirectly report to him. And, and I was actually, I was kind of venting some frustration I was having with a prospect to, uh, the prospect was a really high net worth prospect, but, but they were coming into my office purely for curiosity. Um, they wanted to see, you know, kind of what I was doing that was maybe a little bit different. They really had no pain. They had no purpose of being there. And they were, they were always a do-it-yourselfer with their own money. So, I mean, uh, Jason, uh, his Smith used to call these people sometimes intellectual property thieves, right? They're just coming out there to, <laughs> to, to fish and see what you got to offer and then try to go implement it on their own. And so... I was kind of vetting about this and it got me thinking because my brother shared something with me that, you know, with all the people that he deals with, um, you know, it, there, he breaks people down into kind of three segments when it comes to money. There's, you know, people who just are kind of socially awkward about talking about money. They never want to talk about money and they don't want to be confronted with talking about money. They would rather actually make bad decisions with their money than actually have to go sit down and talk to somebody <laughs> about money. Uh, the second type of person is somebody who thinks they're smarter or more efficient to just do things on their own. And you know, in the financial services industry, we call these the do-it-yourselfers. And then the third type of person is the person who maybe they're smart enough to do it on their own, but they know the value of their own time. They're just not interested, passion, and they'd rather pay somebody else to go do it for them. And so, you know, he was just like, you know, you just spent all this time with the do-it-yourself or trying to convince them that you're better than themselves, right? And that's a hard thing to overcome. He said, in your marketing efforts, you just got to try to get to that third, one-third of this, this segment of people out there who want to outsource to somebody else. And, and I started thinking about kind of how profound, but how simple that was. And then I started to layer in the conversations, Jody, we've had about these buying emotions. And it was like, if I'm going to really segment who who gets to spend their time with me, right? And, and a big part of your training helped me and, and I think a lot of salespeople really understand how valuable their time really is. But if I wanna segment the, the portion of the population that gets to come in and see me, number one, it's, it's trying to narrow down that one third of people who believe in delegating and outsourcing. 
but then also focusing on the first two components of those five, right? Pain in the present or, or that fear or pain in the future. And I just had a big aha moment that my time can be so much more effective if my marketing and filtering got me in front of, you know, if I used those as a natural filter in the sales process. Well, yeah. And it's, it's you know, that old story about uh, the, the guy who has a luggage store and he sells like upscale, really nice luggage. And one guy comes in with, uh, in briefcases and stuff like that. So one guy walks in with a really nice, you know, beautiful briefcase. And another guy walks in at the same time with an old beat up briefcase. And the question's like, okay, who, who would you call on? And it's like, well, the guy with the beat up one needs a new briefcase. But really, it, if they've had the briefcase that long, they probably have learned to live with it. Where as someone who's already exhibited the fact that they buy nice briefcases, I want to go to that person. So they're already sold on a nice briefcase. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of what you're describing. It's like they've already been, they, they're already long enough in the process. I don't, have to con- I don't have to convince them that they shouldn't be looking for free, you know, consulting so they can do it themselves. They've already been sold on the fact that they need a trusted advisor around them. And I don't have to, they're already halfway there. Yeah, I love that. I've never heard that that analogy before, but it's beautiful. So, uh, so we'll we'll kind of you know start to wrap up on one uh, you know one thing that that I think will help advisors more than anything in the sales process. And uh, and uh, your team and the coaches that you have there in Chicago uh, kind of beat this into at least into my head. It was one of the big things that I walked away with and kind of bold print with stars and action items around is. Uh, the importance of asking great questions. Um, I found that you know when I when I kind of did an audit on myself, I was doing probably more of the talking and less of the listening with my prospects. And y- you guys have some kind of rules of thumb to that. I think you know it's it's you know when when again you say it, it kind of hits you like oh that's common sense. But it's one of those things we we fail to implement as a salesperson. But talk a little bit about the importance of, you know, kind of listening versus talking, active listening, and and the role of asking great questions. Yeah, the 70, we call it the 70-30 rule, where 70% of the time you should be listening and 30% you should be talking. And and most people in the selling role flip that. You know, it's 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 the other way. They're talking 70% of the time. So I want to be listening 70% of the time. And the only way to get to have the, the, the prospect talk 70% of the time is to ask really good questions. So an advisor's value. Uh, much of it's tied into being able to ask really good questions, like just like a really good psychiatrist, just ask really good questions. And so being able to have a process and an approach where we know we're going to walk them through a series of questions that can either qualify themselves or disqualify themselves. So then there's an old saying, like the person asking questions is the person in control. So when you're dealing with one of those do-it-yourselfers, they're probably the one asking you questions. Hey, Dave, how would you do this? And I'm just curious, what do you think about this? And what do you think about this approach? And, and so they are clearly in control in that place. Whereas in, in, the, in the trusted advisor relationship, we're approaching it uh, right up front, like you said, with the three options at the end. And so let's just have a conversation and let me ask you some questions. Are you okay with that? Getting, that, getting permission to ask questions at the beginning of the meeting is also really important. A lot of salespeople who kind of read the book on ask people questions, uh, they can badger prospects. So they get a little irritated, they shut down, they get uncomfortable, they want to get out of the situation. But you can completely flip that if you just start all your meetings by saying, hey, you know, so I can better understand if we can help you 
you okay if I ask you some questions today? Because I don't want to assume I know your situation and that it's exactly like the other people that I work with. Absolutely. And I, I would imagine that by the end of all of this, if you do it properly, I mean, one of the biggest challenges I hear from advisors that I have the opportunity to mentor with is that, you know, the sales cycle can drag on. Prospects aren't motivated to actually implement recommendations. And, and you know, I've shared with them, again, I've kind of had a little bit of a different outlook over the last six months on all of this stuff. But if you do a good job early on, asking great questions, making it all about them, the 70-30 rule, and, you know, really disturbing them enough to uncover that pain or that fear, by the time you go to make your recommendations, it, it should be, you know, a little bit of just a formality, right? Because, because it's more you're just fulfilling at that point versus selling. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and the, the, the only person that can really close uh, is the prospect themselves, right? They, we're not going to close them. The, the, the decision to move forward should just be a natural part of the conversation. We shouldn't seem need to learn some tricky, okay, here's the move to try to get them to, I mean, if we're relying on that, we're missing the point. The point is arrange the process in a way that it's a conversation that upfront we agree at the end, if certain things happen, we just know what's going to happen and we move forward in this way. So it doesn't become this whole weird thing at the end. It's just a natural end of the conversation that we agreed to upfront would make sense. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that, that Clarity did, and uh, Jason and I actually delivered a webinar on this. For those on the podcast, you're able to go to the webinar, but uh, we've created a really unique fact-finding process. It's actually a culmination of about 20 years of asking top financial advisors all around the country, and even outside of the United States, what are some of the best questions that you ask your prospects in that fact-finding or, or introductory meeting process? And it's, you know, advisors from MDRT, top of the table, and the Forum 400, and Strategic Coach, and Ed Slot's Elite IRA Advisor, and just some of the, the, the kind of who's who in the financial services industry. And we've documented that, and we kind of redefined the fact-finding process that we teach. Because, you know, traditionally in the, in the financial services industry, experienced advisors, they kind of, they shun a fact finder. They push it aside and they're like, oh, fact finders for inexperienced people who don't know what to ask. And the reality of it is what I've seen and what so many of the advisors that we work with have seen is even if you're the most experienced advisor, when you get into that meeting, sometimes you just forget to ask questions, right? Yes. And yep. so we've created this tool and it's not like a to-do list. It's not a to-do list of, I need to ask this question, then I need to ask that question and then this one. It's just a guide that you can use to remind yourself that as you're going through it, don't forget to cover some of these key points or questions. And, and we've seen that advisors, even the most successful ones that we've brought into our coaching company who have gravitated towards using that fact finder the results have exponentially gone up by not winging it. And I want to endorse that. And I, I would, I would add, I don't know if, if, if anyone listening has read the book, the checklist manifesto, but it's a really good book on checklist. And it's hard to imagine there's a really good book on checklist, <laughs> like a dry topic, but it's a great book that talks about how just exactly what you're saying People who are very experienced in, in any field can't remember multiple parts of a process 
uh, under the pressure of a situation. And one of the stories in the book that's pretty well known outside the book is, is the infection rate at a hospital, the John Hopkins Hospital. Um, they were having infections in operating rooms, which all operating rooms have, and they were trying to figure out how do we reduce the infection rate. And they observed that the doctors, before they went into the, the, the operating room, uh, there was, a, there was a, a mini checklist that they came up with. And it was simple things like wash your hands, put the antiseptic stuff on, and it was like five really simple things. It wasn't advanced, but only five things. When they observed the doctors, they noticed that about 20% of the time, and Johns Hopkins, of course, gets really smart doctors. You, I mean, you get the cream of the crop there, right? And so they were, it, but the 20% of the time, they didn't do something on the checklist. And they were like, how can that be? It's like, we have the smartest doctors in the world. We have the cream of the crop here. How could they not remember one of these five things? And when they really looked at it, they saw that nobody can. It's, it's not an indication of, like you said, experience, how long I've been doing. And it's not, you know, it's not IQ or something. It's just the way... Our, our brains and our processes work is we can't under pressure, especially, and pressure can be a meeting. We don't remember everything we need to. And then we do that thing at the end where we're, we're leaving the meeting after, you know, in the car, we're like hitting ourselves in the head saying, oh, I can't believe I didn't ask that. How did I forget that? Well, it, it's expected you're going to forget it. And what happened is the infection rate went from 11% to zero in 15 months after the after the um, implementation of the of the checklist uh, within the hospital, and there's they they estimated there were eight deaths that did not happen as a result of the that would have happened historically as a result of having these checklists. And like I said, the smartest doctors on the planet go there, and they couldn't remember five simple things, and it wasn't because they were dummies. Absolutely, that's a, it's an amazing story and testament to just having uh, an agenda, a checklist, the right questions in front of you to be able to reference. So, uh, so with that, uh, I, I just want to close out and wrap up a couple things. Um, for those of you who know me, know me well on this call, um, you know, I certainly don't uh, don't promote anything that I really don't believe in, and things that I haven't actually, you know, wrote a check for, put my money where my mouth is, and. Uh, and Jody's training, if you're serious about wanting to improve your game, it's, uh, it's a necessity. It's an investment in yourself, in your business. And, uh, and Jody mentioned earlier, look, there's a couple hundred uh, Sandler offices all across the world. But uh, there's a reason that I, you know, I flew from Cleveland, Ohio to go to Chicago to meet with him and his team. Um, and so, Jody, can you just uh, give the listeners... Um, you know, some information on how they might be able to reach out to you and your team, learn a little bit more about some of the services that you offer if they are serious about improving their, their sales ability and skills. Yeah, there's a couple of ways. You can email me directly, um, and I'll just give you an email. It's jwilliamson at sandler.com. So jwilliamson at sandler.com. Or our, our website is jw.sandler.com. And that'll give it kind of a, a list of different things we do. There's even a link to our, our boot camp on there where, where uh, you know, if there's interest there, you can kind of check out some testimonials and some video on, on what it looks like and the kind of a agenda thing. Or just reach out. I'm happy to, uh, to have a conversation if somebody does or, or connect you with one of my team who might be able to, to help out also. Um, but that's, that's probably the best way. Just make it real simple. Absolutely. And that's the, the boot camp that I went through. So definitely recommend go check that out. Talk to Jody, talk to his team, or uh, if you're serious about it, just sign up and, and go take a look at that. In addition to that, uh, if uh, you got some value out of the content that you heard on the podcast today, 
uh, definitely go and attend the webinar, The Bucket Plan on Demand. It's uh, how, to do, how do you increase your closing ratio by 72.3%? Ask these questions. In that webinar, we're actually gonna go through some of the fact-finding process. Some of the questions that we use on the relationship development side and on uncovering concerns, pains, fears, and uh, just some additional supplemental questions we've gathered over the years and stories around how we've been able to see success with those. So uh, thank everyone for their time jumping on today's podcast. I really wanna thank you, Jody, for lending some insight to us with your, uh, your years of sales experience and coaching and management. And uh, it's always a pleasure and fun having a conversation with you. Well, thanks for having me. All right, everyone. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next month. The Bucket Plan On Demand podcast series is brought to you by Clarity to Prosperity, a financial training, coaching, and IP development organization led by financial advisors, coaches, and business leaders committed to taking a holistic approach on advising. To learn more about our organization and upcoming training opportunities for financial professionals, visit clarity2prosperity.com.